reading this morning is from Matthew 5, 1 through 5. Uh, Receive now the word of the Lord. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he had sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Uh, Before we begin, I made a mistake earlier with one of the announcements. The meeting for the Paradise Baptist Welcome Team won't be until the 5th. So February 5th, that's what it says in your bulletin. It's not what I had in my brain, but February 5th. uh, Please do come for that Welcome Team meeting. All right, would you join me in prayer? Jesus, we come to your word, and we know that your word is faithful. We know that when your word is studied, when it's opened up, that the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit comes in in a powerful way. And so would you equip and enable your servant? Would you equip and enable your people, all of us together, to not just be hearers of the word, but people who receive it and do it. We entrust these things to you. May the words of my mouth and the things we consider in our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, good morning to all of you again. It's great to see you. I learned a new word this week. Some of you may know this if you have a background in economics. Monopsony. Monopoly, but with the word Sony at the end. Okay, I'd never heard of this before. This came from uh, an article I read in the paper written by John Talton, but he was quoting a guy that a lot of you may have heard of, Paul Krugman. He's an economist. He writes for the New York Times. And here's how Krugman explains monopsony. A monopsony happens when a large buyer controls or dominates a market. Both monopoly and monopsony can describe how enormous corporations throw their weight around to the detriment of others. But while monopolies can hurt consumers by their power over pricing products, monopsonies affect the economy in a more subtle way. They affect the economy by having the power to drive down not only the prices that a company is willing to pay for goods and services, but also the wages of workers. So a monopsony has everything to do with wages within a given labor market. And the article went on to give a couple of examples of this. This has actually happened a couple of times in Silicon Valley, where one company will say, hey, we won't hire your people. Uh, We'll keep wages at this rate. You don't hire our people, kind of a gentleman's handshake agreement. And actually, what we're not going to do today is talk about the merits of that, like whether that's okay, is that morally right, if depending on how you believe the economy should work and sort of your opinion on economics, that's a a topic for another day. The point I'm attempting to make is that a monopsony or a monopoly is an exercise of the will of a particular company. The company's effective will, what they are capable of doing, is changing. So there was a day when the economics of a small community could be determined by one or two major employers. You either worked for the paper mill on one side of town or you worked for the printing press on the other side of town. And they could set wages and compete with one another for workers. Now we live in a time where certain employers are so big, like in our region, we could probably name a couple, but I'm not gonna. There are thousands of employers but several big ones can sort of dominate the market and say, we're gonna set wages at this rate, which is a remarkable development. It is an exercise of how a company expresses its will. And that's one of the definitions we've been using for the subject of kingdom. 
If this is your first time with us, I'm really glad you're here. We've been looking at the kingdom of God over the last couple of weeks. And one of the things that we've said is that you and I rule over our kingdoms. Our kingdom is the range of our effective will. So if you're a student, your kingdom is your ability to study, to interact with your friends, to go to school. That's the range of your effective will. There are things that you're not going to be as effective about, such as determining family vacation or budgets and things like that. But the range of your effective will, if you're a student, is school. The range of our effective will could be work. It could be where our family lives. It could be all kinds of things. But one of the things we've been saying throughout this sermon series is that all of our little kingdoms were never meant to operate by ourselves. The philosopher Dallas Willard puts it this way, a person is a spiritual person to the degree that his or her life correctly integrates into and is dominated by God's kingdom. All of our little kingdoms are meant to fit into God's kingdom. And that is actually very good news. That is very, very good news. The bigger picture that we're getting after here is that pursuing spiritual life, the life of flourishing in relationship with God, it can only happen when we recognize that our kingdoms don't belong to ourselves, that they should operate and exist within the framework of God's larger kingdom. And so this begs the question, what, what, what does that even look like? How do we get at that? What, what do we need to do to practice that? And the Beatitudes, these statements that Jesus makes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, we're saying are statements of what life is supposed to be like in the kingdom. So the first week we talked about being poor in spirit and how poverty is actually something good, something worth pursuing in a spiritual sense. Because when we are poor in spirit, we don't count on other kingdoms to give us the meaning and the power and the desire that we need. We're not counting on economics. We're not counting on our job. We're not even counting on our families, those good kingdoms, to give us the kind of life that only God's kingdom gives us. Those are good things, but they're not ultimate things. Last week, Ken gave a great message about one of the values and practices of life in the kingdom, and that's mourning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He shared uh, an excerpt from a sermon of Dr. Martin Luther King, and Dr. King said so well, let us be dissatisfied. Let us be dissatisfied. Let us mourn the ways that our world doesn't look like the world that God wants it to be, the ways that our world are still broken, still fractured, racism and economic inequality and injustice and all these other things. And so our real hope within the Beatitudes is that we grow in our understanding of how that's supposed to look, what this is supposed to be like. And so today we come to a value of the kingdom that's actually surprising and very foreign to us. It's the value of meekness. Meekness, being meek. It's a practice, it's a value, it's an ethic that's very foreign to 21st century ears, but it is critical for us to spend some time on it today. So if you have a bulletin, there's an outline in your bulletin if you want to turn there. And we're going to attempt to answer the three questions that are in your bulletin. Who are the meek? Who owns the earth? And why does this matter? Isn't it great when a sermon ends with why does this matter? Like, aren't we all just like, okay, thank you. And so our thesis in this, kind of our guiding idea, if you want to write this down, goes like this. Meekness uncovers and quickens our true identity. We are inheritors and stewards, and this allows us to be more Christ-like, humble and gentle in heart. Meekness uncovers and quickens our true identity, inheritors and stewards, which allows us to be more Christ-like, gentle and humble in heart. So we'll dive right into the text. If you want to open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 5, I'd encourage you to do so. 
Blessed are the meek. Depending on your translation, the meek can take on different forms. The Greek word for meek is the same word that Jesus uses often, actually. And the way he uses it is usually translated as the word gentle. The word can also be translated kind, forgiving, humane. It's a word that refers to people who possess the quality of forbearance. Forbearance. Jesus uses this word to describe himself later on in Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 11, if you want to turn there with me. He's addressing his disciples and he's talking about values of life in the kingdom. And he says this. This is Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Isn't that a great promise? I am gentle and humble in heart. Therefore, you can find rest for your souls. That word gentle is the same word for meek. Gentle, meek, kind. All these things are good, and yet for most people, especially people deeply embedded in the marketplace who are working on really exciting projects, all that kind of thing, we would probably not say that being gentle or meek or even kind is the way to get ahead. Those are not values that we would lift up and say, people who are successful typically possess those values. Look at any popular film or book or character from popular culture that says something about how to get ahead. Think about it like this. Steve Jobs was not meek. He was not meek. Mark Zuckerberg is not meek. Kanye West is not meek. Notice I'm talking about dudes. We got a real problem with not being meek. Because our culture loves stories like these, these sort of rags to riches, build yourself up by your bootstraps, all that, our whole narrative as a culture begins to change. And I would argue that our assumption now in 2017 is that those who are meek don't get anywhere. You want to be meek? You can be a doormat. You're never going to get stuff done. Have fun with that. But this is where the gospel turns everything on its head. Jesus values meekness. Why would he talk about it? Why would he say, I am gentle and humble in heart, if he didn't value it? And wherever you're coming from this morning, if you've been following Jesus a long time, if you're still figuring out who Jesus is, if you're just like here because your spouse dragged you here, Jesus's character is worthy of studying. Because most people around the world would say he was a virtuous person, he was a great teacher, he was someone whose character is worth emulating. And so when he talks about his own character in the scriptures, it's always worth paying attention to with special detail. (laughs) Jesus values meekness, so should we, but let's make the case about why we should. Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones was a preacher in England uh, during World War II. He presided over Westminster Chapel, not the one in Bellevue, the one in London, His preaching, in a lot of ways, helped shape the spiritual character of the people of England during the war. So if you know a little bit about history, you know that C.S. Lewis had these wonderful radio addresses that then became mere Christianity. All those things helped shape the character of people who were literally being bombed to pieces during the war. So Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was preaching the gospel during this time. So think about that as the framework for what I'm about to read for you. Here's what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said about meekness. Meekness is essentially a true view of oneself, expressing itself in attitude and conduct with respect to others. A true view of oneself. Jones goes on, the person who is truly meek is the one who is truly amazed that God and other people can think of him or her as well as they do and treat him or her as well as they do. This makes that person gentle, humble, 
sensitive, and patient. You're amazed that people think of well of you as they do. You're amazed that God thinks of you as well as you do, as he does. I didn't hear Dr. Lloyd-Jones say anything about getting stuff done. I didn't hear him say a word about efficiency, about grabbing the market by the throat. I didn't hear him say anything about that. I didn't hear him say those who are meek are lazy and ineffective. What did he talk about? He talked about character. He talked about the content of our hearts. He talked about having a true value of oneself, which is impactful not just in our lives, but in the lives of others, because how we view ourselves informs how we treat other people. Now, by implication, this means that if being meek is something that you are repulsed by, if you're just going like, I I don't want anything to do with this, according to Dr. Lloyd-Jones, you are not living in truth. You are living in a false presumption of yourself. You do not have a true estimation of yourself. Meekness is the way that we achieve that. You're living a lie. You're living a persona. You're living a stage presence. Far too many of us struggle with this. And there are times when I do too. People who are meek, who are the ones who at their core put the treatment of others before themselves. They make others more valuable than themselves. And I would argue our world is in a desperate place for this today. And yet we disparage meekness. We sort of write it off as like, yeah, whatever, that would never work. You're never going to get your stock price up if you're meek. We don't do that because Steve Jobs made a billion dollars off the iPhone. Meek people don't do things like that. I was at a dinner at a wedding a while back, uh, and the couple that, uh, was, that the wedding was for is here now, so uh, this is a fun story to be able to tell. Most of the people at this wedding were connected to the Seattle Mariners baseball club. So I'm sitting, my wife and I are sitting at the dinner table with uh, the team secretary, right? The person responsible for all their travel arrangements. We're sitting with the team nurse. We're sitting with all these people who serve behind the scenes in the Seattle Mariners organization. And so as a baseball fan, I'm just like tickled, right? Like I'm so excited by all this. I will say this. Almost every person I talked to at that table that night had been with the Mariners organization at least 20, in some cases 30 years. They were the most humble group of people not a one of them bragged about, well, you know, I, pff, Robinson Cano, I really helped him with this, or, you know, I taped his ankle up the other day. No. They knew that their responsibility is to serve the team, and really, in essence, to serve the fans of the team. They were quick to acknowledge one another as being, oh, he's so good at that, she's so good, they're, they're so great. It was really like sitting with a family. And guess what? These meek people got stuff done. To be meek is not to jettison the ability to do things. It does not mean you're going to be a doormat. It means, like in the case of these folks at the wedding, they cared more about the success of the team than they did about their own glory. What an amazing thing. What's the core of a person who identifies as meek? What's getting their heart to beat? In other words, what's the spring from which such things as gentleness and kindness and patience bubble up? It's that true estimate of yourself, that true ability to say, here's who I am before Jesus Christ. And this goes back to our thesis. Meekness uncovers and quickens, animates our true identity. And that's where we're going to turn to our next point. Our true identity is that we are inheritors and we are stewards. So those who are meek have a true estimate of themselves, which leads to gentleness and humility toward others. They still get stuff done. And according to the beatitude, 
they are the ones who will inherit the earth. Well, what does that mean? The word earth in the original language is pretty straightforward here. It means dirt, it means ground, it means firmament, things you can put between your fingers. It's not terribly complicated. But inherit is a lot more interesting. Inherit is cleromenomeo, and it means to obtain something by inheritance or to have a share in something. Jesus promised his followers uh, in Matthew 19 that whatever they left behind, they would receive an even greater inheritance. Turn with me to Matthew 19, please. This is Matthew 19, 29. This is right after Jesus' conversation with the rich young ruler, the one who said to him, you know what? I've checked all the boxes. I've done everything right. Now what I do? And Jesus says, give it all up. Walk away. And he can't do it. It's a heartbreaking passage. And then in reflecting upon that, this is what Jesus teaches his followers. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my name's sake, because of me, because of what I've called people to do, they will receive a hundredfold and they will inherit eternal life. Inherit the earth. We see inherit come up again in the story of the prodigal son from Luke chapter 15. When the younger son asks his father, give me my inheritance, I want it. What he's telling his father is one of the most scandalous things you could say to someone who is an elder in that culture. He's saying to his father, you should drop dead. You should die right now so I can receive my inheritance. So Jesus frames inheritance positively as being given by God the father. In the story of the prodigal son, the younger son, at least at the beginning of the story, is the negative version of inheritance. He wants inheritance that is selfish, self-centered. It's all about me. I want to do what I want. And he gets what he wants, but he doesn't. He doesn't get what he wants. Now, what am I talking about when I say stewardship? That's kind of one of the key words here. What do you and I steward? What, what did we inherit? I didn't, I didn't hear about an inheritance. Did anybody go to that meeting? I missed that. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 22. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church, and I'll read this and I'll say a little bit more about what he's saying. 1 Corinthians 3, we'll start in verse 21. So let no one boast about human leaders, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church to remind them of their status as inheritors. They have inherited everything. Their stuff is not their stuff. Their reputation isn't theirs. Those words about Apollos and Cephas, these were famous teachers at the time. You can't hitch your wagon to that. That doesn't count for much in the kingdom of God. So in the midst of this address, and he's basically talking about meekness and humility. I'd encourage you to read the whole chapter. He drops this line about ownership, and it's such a fascinating sequence. All belongs to you. You belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. Rudolf Steer is a 19th century German theologian, and he kind of interprets this passage with a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek metaphor. He says, self-renunciation is the way to world domination. When we release all things to Jesus Christ, we receive all things through Jesus Christ. And the world is Christ's. The kingdom that Jesus rules and reigns over is here now. And we're invited to participate in it. So I want to do a quick thing. I want to say a big meta statement over this whole thing. And then we're going to get really practical and talk about how you can apply this to your lives. If everything belongs to Christ, everything 
can be extended to Christ's people. When he is Lord over everything, there's not one thing that he knows to be good for, to, for us that he would not extend to us. He's talked about this several times in his ministry. Ask, seek, knock. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and the door shall be opened unto you. These are the things that a good God promises to his people. So here's an application. If your car transmission broke down this week, and you were struggling to figure out how to pay for it, would you ask God to help provide for your car transmission? Would you ask him for these seemingly everyday, fairly normative things? Would you? I had a kind of debate one time with one of my roommates in college, Bobby. Bobby and I were talking before we went to school that day. And, Bobby's, and I was like, what do, you, what do you have going on today? You know, what's, what's on your agenda? And he said, oh, I have a quiz in my economics class. And I said, okay, great. I'll, I'll, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for that your quiz goes well. And he goes, you don't need to pray for my quiz. It's just a quiz. It's not that big a deal. And I thought about that. It really stuck in my craw because I was like, I agree. Fundamentally, it's just a quiz. It's a blip on the radar screen. On the other hand, it's a quiz in a study program that's been entrusted to my friend Bobby, which is given to him by God, which belongs to Jesus Christ. So would you lift up your economics quiz to God? Would you lift up your 15-minute meeting with one of your direct reports? It's just a check-in, but you just want to lift it up to God. Would you lift up to God that your kids are trying to do something at school and you want it to be successful? I mean, big things, small things. The point I'm trying to make is that there's nothing too small to lift up to God. Because if everything belongs to him, everything can be surrendered to him in prayer. Now, how this hits me is that in my role in, in shepherding and leading and working with our team and doing everything here, I try really hard to never refer to Bethany Eastside as my church. I try my best, and this is just a thing for me, I try to use language like the congregation that I serve, the people I serve on the east side. This is not my church. Even if I had been there when this church started in Bill and Elaine's living room, I don't think I could claim that this is my church. Why? Because of the sequence from 2 Corinthians. All belongs to you, all belongs to Christ, all belongs to God. It's not my church. I am privileged to serve here, and I am humbled to be called the pastor of this church, but it's not mine. It's mine to steward. I am an inheritor of this incredible ministry that God is doing here, and I'm excited that we're growing. I'm excited about all the things that God is doing, but I want to be really cautious that my language doesn't lead me to believe that I'm anything but an inheritor and a steward. How about you? Inheritors typically have a line of defense which prevents good things from becoming ultimate things. If you're an inheritor, you're a lot better off looking at your life, the things that have been entrusted to you, and saying, you know what, this is just stewardship, man. This is just me being given something. That way, the thing, whatever it is, your job, your family, your children, those good things cannot become ultimate things. And that's a practice that we all need. So that's practical application two. Practical application three I'm going to go uh, agricultural on us and talk about a combine. How many of you grew up anywhere around agricultural communities? You know what a combine is? Okay, forgive me if I butcher this. Combines do three operations to make sure that grain gets processed and gets, uh, gets reaped. Reaping, threshing, and winnowing. I was thinking about this in terms of being meek because being meek is one of those traits of discipleship that's like a combine. 
When you jump into community, when you're part of a small group, when you're here worshiping, you're agreeing that there are always things about our character that needs to be changed to become more like Jesus Christ. None of us should ever say to one another, yeah, I got that covered. I've arrived. I've figured that out. We are part of a combine of character formation, and meekness is one of the chief actions in the combine. It's not something we're ever going to get right. It's going to be something that has to keep continually working on us. But in its best form, discipleship should be like a combine, and then it draws out the best that Christ wants in each of us. So if you're feeling discouraged about this meekness talk right now, have hope. None of us has this nailed down. None of us will ever have this nailed down until Jesus Christ comes. It is a constant emphasis in my own life to remember that this is not my church. Constant emphasis. And what could that be for you? Where do you need a regular reminder that you are a steward and you are an inheritor? Maybe this week you take your bulletin from Sunday, you tape it up right by your screen at work, and you go, I'm a steward and I'm an inheritor of this space, of this office, of this title, of this position. Maybe that's what you got to do today. Maybe if you're a stay-at-home parent, you tape it on the, uh, the dashboard and you see it every time you get in the car to go pick up your kids. I'm a steward and I'm an inheritor. The combine needs to remind us of what God is doing and how we fall short, how we fail, all of us, and how we as a community are here to hold each other up and remember to get back in, that the combine keeps turning. We keep growing. We keep becoming more like Christ over time. So to answer the original question, who owns the earth? The earth belongs to the ones whom God has entrusted it to. The earth belongs to those who trust God and who have received God's trust. Not perfect people. We talked about this in the first week of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not for the perfect, it is for the poor. Those who are poor in spirit. And the kingdom of God is neither swaggering nor sniveling. That's where the title of our sermon comes from this week. Inheritors are neither swaggering nor sniveling. What I mean by that is because we have inherited much, We don't get to walk around like we own the place. Does swaggering lead to success? In the near term, maybe, but you're that guy that nobody wants to hang out with at lunch. (coughs) Swaggering does not lead to long-term success, neither does sniveling, neither does thinking that you're nothing, that you're worthless. Meekness is that wonderful place in the middle. One of the teaching pastors at our teaching team meeting put it this way, to be meek is to draw your power from humility. You draw your power from humility when you're someone who's trying to be meek. I'm going to make a claim that's not going to be easy to swallow. Our problem on the east side is not sniveling. Our problem on the east side is our swagger. And I'm offering the biblical witness of meekness as one way to address that. What can we do about it? Let me share these words uh, from the letter of James, and I'll, I'll... Pull them from the message translation, which is a paraphrase of the Bible. James writes this. Do you want to be counted wise to build a reputation for wisdom? Here's what you do. Live well, live wisely, live humbly. Live with meekness. It is the way you live, not the way you talk, that counts. Mean-spirited ambition isn't wisdom. Boasting that you're wise isn't wisdom. Twisting the truth to make yourself sound wise isn't wisdom. It's the furthest thing from wisdom. It's animal cunning. It's devilish conniving. Whenever you're trying to look better than others or get the better of others, things fall apart and everyone ends up at each other's throats. Live well, live wisely, live humbly. Those are powerful statements. 
And as I was reflecting on that this week, what caught me up was, do I know people that live that way? Do I have people in my life who live in a framework of meekness, who would never say they've got it all figured out, but who would say that meekness is something that they value because it's something Jesus Christ values? The way that's impressed upon me is through people who are older than me, who are further along in life than me, and who have a heck of a lot more wisdom than me. I thought of my mentor, Earl, from our years in Colorado. Earl's in his late 60s. He and I still keep in touch to this day. It's pretty fun. We got to know each other through Young Life. And so once a month, I'd get in my car, I'd drive over to Earl's house, and he lived out in these, uh, these fields out past town. And I'd park in his driveway, walk up, and he'd give me a big hug when I walked in. And he had one of those automatic coffee makers where you just push a button and out drops a latte. Like, I know coffee purists hate that, but I thought that was cool. And I'd get my latte, and I'd sit in the chair with Earl, and we'd just talk. We'd just talk about life. And at the time, we had you know, two young babies. We were trying to figure out our finances, which is always a struggle. And I just remember being free to pour out before Earl what was in my heart. And one time, and this is where Earl really showed his meekness of character to me, I was going on and on about something. I don't even remember what. Earl sat back in his chair, and he looked at me, and he said very gently, these years that you're in, these, these young kid years, these are hard years. Isn't it refreshing when someone wiser and further along in life says to you, you from this, let me write you a check to alleviate. It's just, this is hard. It is so great. It is such a great example of solidarity and empathy to have someone say to you, yeah, that is hard. My encouragement then is if you're interested in finding ways to pour out that wisdom that you have, or if you're hungry for that wisdom, find someone like Earl. I'm here to help. I've been here long enough that I know some of the folks in this congregation well enough to say, this is a person you should sync up with. This is a person you should spend time with. If for no other reason, then they can look you in the eye and say to you, this is a hard time. And it's okay. And you're not in it by yourself. Consider the value of mentoring. Considering the value of giving away some of your life for another person. So to review, meekness uncovers and quickens our true identity that we are inheritors and stewards And this allows us to be more like Christ, to be humble and gentle in heart. Meek people let humility be their power source. What is your power source right now? Where are you trying to draw your life from? Your kingdom, the range of your effective will. Where are you really trying to hone that will down and do something and you haven't asked Jesus to help you? You haven't held it out to him. You're like my roommate Bobby with his economics quiz. What have you been trying to kind of keep back? One of the pastors I admire says this, the gospel, thinking about meekness in our case today, is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. To be meek is not to think less of yourself, not to become anybody's doormat. It is to think of yourself less. We are free to do that when we embrace our identity as being inheritors and stewards and we can still get stuff done. Swagger's cool for a little while, then it gets old. Sniveling is not for those who've been given much. The kingdom is not filled with those who swagger and who snivel. It is filled, it is populated by the poor in spirit, by the meek, by those who are able to mourn, and it is available to us today. So I'm going to invite the band to come forward, and then I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer where we ask God to impress these values upon our hearts. Would you join me in prayer?
Jesus, we thank you for the ways that you have been so faithful to us. We are humbled that you continually extend your grace and your mercy. And as we consider the call to be people who are meek, for any of us that are really wrestling with that, who are really thinking, I, I just, I don't think I can do that. In these moments of silence where you give us some time to reflect, would you impress upon our hearts just how you desire for that to happen? Your way, your timing, through your community. Give us a few moments to just listen for your voice about meekness. Now, Jesus, we ask that as we continue in worship, as we rise and unite our voices, that the meekness you desire, that gentleness and humility, that true estimation of ourselves, that the words that we sing, the prayers that we pray, together would inform your desire for us. May this continued time in worship honor you. We ask all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand as we continue in our worship?